Welcome to the Do One Better podcast, where every week I focus on philanthropy, sustainability, and social entrepreneurship. I'm your host, Alberto Ligi, and I hope you'll enjoy the podcast. Keep on listening if you want to improve the world. Welcome to the Do One Better podcast. I am Alberto Ligi, your host from London. And as many of our regular listeners know, uh, the purpose of the podcast is to inspire our global listeners to be more philanthropic, to act sustainably, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. And before we get things moving, just want to encourage everyone to subscribe to this podcast. It really does make a huge difference for us in terms of our rankings, and it makes it much, much easier for others who are looking in the um, in iTunes, uh, makes it easier for them to discover the show. So if you do subscribe, that would be greatly appreciated. And today, it's really a pleasure to introduce my guest, who's joining us from South Africa. Is that correct? Are you in South Africa, David? That is correct. Excellent. So, David Smolin, who is the Chief Executive Officer of the Smolin Group, and we've known each other for many years. Um, we've always had a good rapport, uh, but actually, we've never really spoken about sustainability and social impact and environmental issues until last year when I'd written a piece on impact investing for the Economist Intelligence Unit, and uh, and that triggered a conversation that was unexpected but really pleasant in, in many different ways. So here we are today. David, uh, I, I'm going to let him introduce himself and the Smolin Group, but I'll say that it's a, it's a remarkable outfit. David is traveling the world, running a firm that employs about 80,000 people in 50 countries, and somehow he am, always manages to look remarkably refreshed. Um, so that's a trick that maybe we're going to have to delve into as well, the secret for that in this podcast. But um, but it is really a pleasure to have David on board. And he is someone who is passionate about, I suppose, the alignment between growing a scalable firm successfully and also making a positive social environmental impact. And that's sort of the theme, the undercurrent of today's podcast. But David, welcome on board. Heartfelt welcome. Thanks, Al. Good to be with you. So tell me a little bit about how you um, tell me a little bit about the Smolin Group. The group was started actually some time ago in 1931 um, by my late grandfather, and uh, he was unemployed, didn't didn't have an occupation, and he he approached somebody who actually allowed him to start selling paint on a commission out of the boot of a car. And non-employed, he, he was not. A, he was not formally employed. He was a commission-based agent. And actually, funnily enough, we we think we probably can lay claim to the first outsourced sales rep in the world in 1931. And and so the business grew from there. He 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 then managed to find someone else to represent, and then he ran out of time, so he got another uh, sales rep to join him. And over a, over a number of years. They built up, call it a syndicated sales force, uh, representing a, a number of different brand owners, and they were selling the products to wholesalers in in the 30s and 40s and, and 50s in South Africa. And that was, you know, before um, any supermarkets or or modern trade, as you would call it today, had evolved. And then in the late 60s, my father joined the company. And he saw what was happening in modern trade and retail, and he started developing services inside uh, modern trade, supermarkets, uh, sales reps, in-store demonstration services, and a whole suite of services that were designed to really support a brand owner inside physical retail. And then he built that 
business for approximately 30 or 40 years. And in the early 2000s, myself and my brother Michael started getting involved in the company where we saw an opportunity to perform these services around the world. The business, um, it took us to India by chance, actually, where one of our clients um, actually asked us to come and have a look at the market to see if we could make a difference. And, and actually, this is, I guess, kind of where it, it dovetails with what you're saying is because what we found in this market was the the people that were performing the services were mainly employees that were being provided to brand owners by, I don't know what you, you could call these people, people, labor brokers, effectively man, manpower companies where effectively the manpower company would provide the labor to the brand owner, charge a fee for providing the labor and manage the uh, payroll. But there was no form of um, career progression or training or supervision or development. So, so really, really what it was is people, you know, trying to find a way to make some money to live. And when we when we started the company in India and we built it the way we had it in South Africa, where you effectively you're not using labor brokers, but these are full time employees with benefits, with training, with jobs, with a, a career trajectory, we found that it switched on a different kind of engagement, and that led to a different kind of output and business performance. And so this turned on a light for us where we realized that this is actually an opportunity around the world. And so we started to build the company around the world. And today, you know, we're in, as you say, about 50 different countries. And one of the things that I think we're very proud of as a company is that at a very low entry level, we are enabling people to join the workforce and actually have a long-term career. Because if you think about it in, in this day and age, we have this massive issue of unemployment around the world, particularly in the developing markets. And think about how tough it is for somebody without a tertiary education to actually break into the workplace. You know, what opportunities exist for somebody like that? So in a way, you know, the potential of human beings is normally distributed, but the opportunities for human beings is unbelievably skewly distributed. So you know, we, we in business have to find vehicles to allow people with potential to access opportunity, and our business is a machine for that. Let me ask you, who constitutes this 80,000 employee number? Let's talk about the, the tasks or the jobs that are being performed. So you, know, you could say one of the biggest jobs by volume is an individual, a man or woman, in a store replenishing a shelf or... Uh, performing an in-store demonstration or building a display for a brand owner. And, and that could be um, somebody that's been working for a couple of years, or it could be somebody straight out of school into their first job. And essentially what we would be doing is bringing them into the workplace, into retail to perform these jobs and giving them on-the-job training and development and then, you know, if they show potential, they can progress up to more higher value jobs through the organization. In, in a way, I often say to the leaders in the company, think of it as first audition of idols, where you, you're looking for talent, you're looking for a spark, you're looking for somebody that, that didn't have the money, you know, to necessarily go to university or get a tertiary education. They've applied for a job. It's almost like, a, like an internship or apprenticeship. And if you see that potential, 
back those people with development and training so that they can progress in their career. I, I remember looking at in the past, looking at mining companies and how mining companies were looking at, uh, at their workforce, HIV AIDS being a huge problem and the provision of antiretroviral drugs to help uh, their employees improve their, their well-being and their health. And actually it transpired that it's not only a good moral thing to do, but it also made financial sense for them. I'm curious, in terms of the context, the social context for a lot of these employees of yours, what's the family situation? What, what are some of the, the, the more pronounced ailments uh, that you might have to, uh, to be aware of when you're thinking about your, your workforce? I would say one of the biggest concerns is you, you, you'd be dealing with an individual who would have, be earning a very low wage, but at the same time would have multiple dependents. And so, you know, I, I often feel that in big corporations, people tend to outsource this kind of work because it's it's quite um, emotionally taxing to be able to to be able to employ at this scale. If you are a company with a soul, because you you have to think about the the welfare of the individual, you have to think about their future, their development, and providing a career trajectory because. You cannot commercially necessarily pay more. But, and, and this is where I think it gets quite interesting because if you are not doing more for your people than just providing them a living wage, then you are no better than a modern day slave trader. Now, now that might sound, you know, provocative, but, but I really do believe that a lot of big corporations today are buying labor from labor brokers where they're paying a small markup to people. And really they, they're almost buying um, human capital as a raw material, if you want to call it that. And, and the fact that you're paying a minimum wage for that, I don't think excuses you from having a moral conscience about that because essentially somebody that, that chooses to work at a minimum wage is not necessarily choosing that opportunity because um, that's what they want to be doing. They are choosing that to put food on the table and often for multiple um, dependents. And I, I, I feel that being a mindful employer, we need to be very conscious about this and not kind of use vehicles to abuse this this form of work. And, and you know, we often talk about sustainability, you know, thinking about the environment, carbon emissions, plastics, and this type of thing, which I think is is absolutely important. And, you know, if you have a look at our organization, we think about these things, even though we don't have a very big carbon footprint. But how mindful are we about the sustainability of human capital um, and how we treat people and how we develop them? So I think that's that's almost like an area that's in the invisible spectrum of light, because it's almost like if you pay a, a, a minimum wage, then you're off the hook. But I don't think that that's necessarily true. You know, one of the sustainable development goals, goal number eight, about decent work and and economic growth. And I remember uh, a quote of yours that I read someplace about defining or, or, or describing underemployment as a, a really important but yet very silent pro problem, much more silent or not pronounced in the public eye as unemployment. Absolutely. You know, it's quite interesting when you have a look at sort of the behavior of some large corporates. I mean, I, I was chatting offline the other day you know, in a in a raw materials procurement process, you have a concept of an e-auction. What that would be is that vendors who would be looking to sell to a 
consumer goods company would who, who were providing an input into the product would be on a online portal and there would be a reverse auction so they would be able to bid backwards to keep lowering their price until the company said i accept the lowest bid so it's it's the reverse of an auction if you if you call it that uh, does, that, does that make sense and this is something that's becoming uh, quite prevalent in, in well it's quite prevalent in procurement practice and you know for the first time we're starting to see this practice take place for human capital so uh, for example we were we were we were put through a procurement process um, a while ago where it was a reverse e-auction and I, I said to our teams I said it's it's unconscionable to bid down the wages of individuals that are coming into work at this wage rate it's just not I mean, forget the commercialities of it. It's completely immoral to do that. I mean, it's, you know, if you think about the parallels to the slave trade, it's actually quite uh, uh, chilling, if you want to call it that. So the instruction that I gave was, I said, put in the bid into the e-auction system, but you're not permitted to change the bid. Put in what you think is fair. And if you lose the bid, you lose the bid. But you, we cannot morally you know, have a reverse bid on people's wages at that level. I just think it's, you know, it's crazy behavior. So, you know, if you have a look at sort of big picture today, I think what you find is you have a look at big consumer goods companies or or the kind of economy um, and private equity that that is placing extraordinary pressure on organizations to become more efficient and in taking out costs by doing that. Um, but when you look at, I, I think, a business, you know, I, I was there was once a fantastic um, leader at Unilever who was the head of um, procurement, and he spoke about the, the spectrum of light as an analogy. And, you know, there's the visible spectrum, which is what is easy to see. And then on either side of the visible spectrum, there is the invisible spectrum of light. And I think far too often in business, we focus just on the visible spectrum as an analogy. So what's the cost of an individual per month without thinking about what's in the invisible spectrum? So it's because it's quite, it's much, much harder to see and to measure. So sustainable business, if you know, if you are able to show somebody that you care, if you are able to provide them training, there is an implicit bargain with the person that they will give you something back in the form of engagement or effort for that investment that you've made in them. And, you know, from our perspective, it's very real. And I, I don't think it's about necessarily even being philanthropic. I think it's, uh, um, it's about sustainable business, but making it, making it sustainable for yourself too. If you find a way to invest in the future of human beings and create a belief system they will reward you with engagement that will enable you to outperform. And that's, but that's, that's a much, much more difficult thing to think about and to manage and to execute as an organization. It's far easier to, to just try and do something for cheaper. Um, and I think that that sits at the heart of a lot of our sustainability problems is that, you know, Often as business leaders, we think about sustainability as almost sort of doing good or doing the right thing or doing what's good for the environment 
not trying to build it into the fabric of how we do business and making it um, a way of creating competitive advantage. Because if you have a look at um, people in the workplace, staff turnover is incredibly expensive. The cost of losing the skills, retraining somebody, um, somebody new without the experience. If you have a look at human engagement, I mean, we've all been in a relationship where somebody made us feel engaged and we gave more. And we've always been in a relationship where somebody made us feel less engaged and we gave less. And when you put it in, in a personal context like that, I mean, just think about how, how much how much more they are, how much more you're prepared to give some people than other people because of the way that they make you feel. In terms of the conversation you're you're having with your with your shareholders, I mean, do you find that that's a, a evolving as well? And and indeed, it makes good business sense to be sustainable to to look at, at workforce issues in a, in a more enlightened manner. Um, but I'm wondering about whether you're noticing a difference in moods. In your shareholder base, uh, what, what it may have been five or ten years ago versus what it is today, and whether the enlightened approach that you're describing to me now, whether that's something that seems to be generally embraced, or whether it's um, a work in progress in terms of educating them. You know, my feeling is that there is an almost perfect correlation in the sentiment of an investor and their investment time horizon. My largest investor is our family, and you know, they have an infinite time horizon. So in, in sort of constructing business practice, you know, you're building something that you hope is going to last forever. Whereas if you, if you think about an investor that's um, looking to buy something now and sell it um, in a short space of time, they don't really, um, Generally speaking, they, they have less concern for the, for the long-term prospects. And I, I feel that the business of sustainability is a, is a long-term game. It's much easier if you have shareholders with a very long time horizon to, to be afforded the opportunity to behave in a, in a more sustainable way because they're prepared to wait longer to get the benefits. Um, but I, I, definitely, I definitely do believe that um, the benefits are there. And, you know, there's... I was once given a piece of advice that um, financial results are a lag indicator for operating results, which are a lag indicator for human capital results. And it's so beautiful and so simple and it's so true. The, the issue is that you have to have the patience. And anybody who's a parent, I think, will know, will know that. You know, um, human capital results take time. A lot of training, curating, helping, educating, learning, cajoling. But at the, I, I truly believe that if you have the patience and the will and 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 the heart, the results will be there. Yeah. And this journey, I imagine it is a journey. I mean, I, I don't suppose you left university thinking about sustainability. Certainly, when you know, when I was at university, it wasn't the big topic that it is today. It was the opposite of what I mean. I left university and I, I became a chartered accountant and. Um, I, well, whilst I was doing my accounting articles, my, the largest client I had was uh, I was working on the on an insurance company and asset management uh, business, and it commercially, you know, it was a very very good company. So when I left my my articles, I started a, a financial services company with some partners. I did that for about ten years, 
and we built the business over time and it was successful. But then I, I went to India on holiday and I was with my wife and that was where we had just started the, the family company. And I saw the potential impact that we could have on people's lives. And that sort of, I did, I wouldn't say that I really was thinking about sustainability at that point. In, in fact, I wasn't, but mm-hmm. it just, it just hit me at, at, I think a more subconscious level that this was something that would be more, that was going to feed me emotionally. And, you know, I guess often you can sort of be deluded in that you're doing this for goodness and for other people, but, but actually, you know, we, we all do things because we get pleasure from them. So it was something that I felt was good for me, you know, to, to get into this kind of business without really necessarily knowing what it was all about. And then uh, I'll never forget, uh, you know, many years ago, listening to talk by uh, Paul Pullman, who mm-hmm. um, at the time was the CEO of Unilever, and he spoke about the two great battles that we will face in our generation. The one being man versus nature, and the other one, the many versus the few. And that the key to building a long-term sustainable business is to is to not just build a business that's commercially successful, but a business that can have an impact against these two great big battles. And and I think that that was the heart of Unilever's sustainable living plan. So I would say that that was something that sort of maybe more explicitly opened my eyes to this. And I felt it was always part of the founding DNA of our business. But, you know, listening to this helped me codify it in a much more explicit way and actually build it as part of our corporate strategy. And so I, I just feel that it's not enough you know, it, it's it's too small an achievement to build a commercially successful business. I think the real challenge is to build a business that is commercially successful, that is kind to the planet and is impactful on communities. That for me is the definition of great achievement. When you see um, an individual that joins the company at a very low um, level, in the organization or, or at a very basic grade of work, but they have the potential and you you back that potential and they can rise up through the business into a, into a position of senior managerial um, capability where, where they're actually running a big business. It's, it's really, really exciting. It's like business Cinderella stories. And I think that that's, that's what we have to be aspiring to. Um, because there are just so many people that are born into a world where they are full of potential, but because of circumstance, they may not be given the opportunity. Are there instances, uh, would you like to share some, some of these Cinderella stories, if you will, of, of someone who maybe joined at the very lowest entry point of the organization and now is, um, is an outstanding invaluable member of your management team? We, we would have many, many examples. I mean, uh, I'll just think of one off the top of my head. We have someone who joined us close to 20 years ago at a, at a junior field management position in a region in South Africa. And uh, today he's managing six countries with 25,000 people reporting to him, looking after some, some of the most valuable consumer goods companies, field operations, so these things are possible. And I mean, we've, we're lucky that we've been in business for such a long time that you've got the time to showcase these stories because what happens is when people see it come true, you know, you believe. And, and I think belief, belief is important. And 
it's hard to lead unless people believe. What's the biggest potential or opportunity you see going down in the three or five year horizon to leverage your scale and global presence for for impact? You know, if you even in our organization, if you if you query it internally, many people still see social impact as corporate social investment or doing charitable work, which I think all of those things are really good. You know, and and they're the right things to be doing. And we encourage that. But for me, the biggest opportunity is changing the culture of the way people see their responsibility in business. I think there was that movie, um, Pay It Forward. I can't remember what the name of the movie was. And almost saying, if, if you find yourself in a position of leadership where you are so lucky that you have managed to rise up through an organization to a position where you have influence, it is your responsibility to say, what can I do for the people that are working with me and for me? Not what they can do, what they can do for me. And how can you really really think deeply about their welfare, their physical welfare, their psychological welfare, their commercial welfare, and what can you do to position them to enhance their lives and to make that cultural? Because I, I feel that if you, if you have the ability to transform people's thinking in that way, you can, you can radically um, transform a business. And it's very simple because, you know, if you just think for yourself, there are, there are some people that will phone you and say, can you help me with this? And you will get in your car and you will go and do it. I'm stuck at the airport. You'll drop everything and you will go and fetch them and help them. And there's some people that will phone you and you'll, you'll look at it and you'll want to hit the red button. And now you always know is that a green button or a red button call. And if you if, if imagine you can transform the mindset of everybody to a green button call just think about if you are a, an employer with 80,000 people and you can get that positive delta think about the difference that you are going to get in impact on the organization and think about that relative to what the variability or the delta is in the wage bill that has to be an enormous opportunity you might have some competitors listening to this show and thinking, mm, maybe I need to treat my staff a little bit better. Do you know, Al, I'd be happy to share that secret. I was, I remember, um, I was listening to the, the Berkshire Hathaway annual review. And I think someone, someone said to Charlie Munger, you know, your, your, your recipe is so simple. Why don't your competitors do it? And he said, it's simple. They want to get rich quick. <laughs> What about your peer network? You know, you're someone who's affluent. You're you're running your firm. You're a member of YPO, the Young Presidents Organization. You have really interesting and engaging individuals running co companies there. How much do you find that those around you get it? That those around you get what you're saying? And how much do you think actually still needs to be done in order to get people on board? I think that most people overwhelmingly think of sustainable businesses, recycling. Um, bottles and lowering carbon emissions. And they also think about those practices as coming at a cost to business. And, and I think the real shift is when you start to change your mindset to realize that these things don't have to come at a cost to business. And in some cases, actually can lower your cost of doing business. That, I, th I think, is a big bridge to cross because you, you have to demonstrate it to yourself. But I think that once you cross that bridge, you never go back again. And, and so I think it's, it's sort of, it's moving away from thinking about 
being philanthropic or doing charitable work to saying I'm going to evolve my business model. Um, it's it's like having a, I would say the analogy is having a more efficient combustion engine car versus having an electric car. It's just a different business model or, or evolving a business model, um, not trying to just simply, I think it's, it's obviously it's great to become more to, to have less carbon emissions and to become more efficient but if you can transform you know into into a next generation of vehicle i think that 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 really becomes meaningful sustainable and enduring change if someone's listening to this and they're in a similar predicament perhaps they're running a, a firm and uh, and they have the opportunity to do things maybe a little bit differently and where do you recommend they start looking at or reading or, or doing? Where, where do they start? I think it's about finding, you know, what makes you tick internally and, and what's going to feed you as an individual and make you feel enlightened and, and, and do better business. And, and then just try and build that into your, into your way of operating. Um, but I, I think that once you open your eyes, it's quite, quite easy to find the way. If our listeners forgot everything that you've just said for the last half hour or so, but they remembered one salient point, or if they could take away one key piece of advice, what would that be? I would say for those listeners who have got children to try and think about what the world is going to be like if we carry on for them when they're in our position with their children. And I think that we as human beings, because we have our own finite time horizon don't necessarily think beyond that but if you think about little people who who you really love and care about and you think about the issues that we have in the world today with disparity of rich and poor and the environment and and you just mathematically extrapolate that forward and think about the world that those little people that you love are going to be living in one day that should be enough inspiration for you to want to make a meaningful change. That's been really inspirational. Thank you so much for sharing uh, your story and shedding light on the whole workforce uh, situation and how you're leveraging a really great approach to improve the well-being of almost 80,000 people who, who work for your firm. Thanks, Al. Thank you for listening to the Do One Better podcast. If you want to find out more about our show, about our guests, additional links and resources, visit our website at liji.org. That's L-I-D-J-I dot And don't forget, success at the Do One Better podcast is about inspiring you to be more philanthropic, to think more about sustainability, and to embrace social entrepreneurship. Hopefully, these stories will encourage you to take action and change the world around you for the better. <music>